I am excited to be here with you. Like, I am a huge believer in, like, expectations. So, like, some of you see me and you're like, yes, this guy. And some of you are, like, looking at me and be like, oh, this guy. And, like, your expectations of what today holds is actually going to become your reality. Like, I, I, I'm a huge optimist. Like, my, my wife hates it. My wife is a realist. I am an optimist. Like, my wife sees the glass that's half full, and she knows it's half full. Like, I see the glass, and I think if I stare at it long enough, it will fill up, bubble over, spill all over. The, like, I believe that your expectations matter. And I learned this at a young age. I grew up in, in a house, and it was just me and my dad and my brother. And my mother passed away when I, when I was seven years old, and, and my father was a single father. He raised me and my brother, and our house growing up was like a frat house. It was like a party every night. Like, we were running around in our underwear. We had, like, little trails to go to places. We never cleaned. We never did dishes. If we wanted to check the laundry, we just smelled it like it smells great. Let's wear it. You know, I, 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 my wife kids me all the time. She's like, I've got like one pair of pants and like six gray shirts, and that's all I wear because that's how I grew up. Like, that's what you did. And uh, I remember knowing that this isn't like we even got tattoos on the back, like bro tattoos on the small of our backs. Like, we were, I'm just kidding about the tattoos. This guy was staring at me. And I remember growing up and like, hey, like, I, I, one day, like, it would be cool to like have a wife, you know? I would like to have a wife, but I really didn't have any expectations of what a good husband should be like because I didn't grow up watching my dad be a husband. I grew up watching my dad be a dad. And so when you don't have it, you go find it. And so I found two men that actually shaped my life and what it was like to be a husband. Here are these two men right here on the screen for you. This is them, okay? <laughs> these are the two men. That I grew up and I shaped what, it was, what I was supposed to be. Now, if you're under the age of 30, you have no clue who these men are. The guy on your left is Victor from the Young and the Restless. Somebody just said yes. <laughs> you understand why I wanted to be like Victor. My dad was an interesting fellow. He was a farmer and a seventh grade math teacher that loved soap operas. Like, there wasn't a woman in our house, but yet every day at 11.30, we come out of the tobacco patch, pouch, the tobacco pouch, patch, and we sit and we watch Young and the Restless. This is what we did. Mr. Carey, your seventh grade math teacher, here's something you need to know about him. And I would watch Victor, and there was something about Victor. It's like when Victor walked in the room, everybody took notice, especially the ladies. Like, the music would change. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. And, like, the ladies would, like, kind of turn like this. And, like, they, they, they talked to Victor different and they treated. And, like, I wanted to be Victor. And then I saw this other husband named Al Bundy. <laughs> On Thursday nights, we would watch this show called Married with Children. And it was Al and Peggy. And Al was, like, the king of the kingdom. Like, he would come home from his job at the shoe store, like, and he would walk in the house, and he would tell Peggy, this is how it's going to be. This is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. He would sit on the couch, put his hand in places where you probably shouldn't put your hand, and, and that was how life was. And I remember, like, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a mixture of Victor and Al. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to get somewhere spiritual, maybe. <laughs> so I go to Cumberland University. And uh, I, I, I'm in my college algebra class, and I'm from Trousdale County, Tennessee. I think I've told you this before. Like, we didn't have high standards for the ladies in Trousdale. If you had all your teeth and you didn't chew tobacco, like, we were in. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in the door comes this smoking 
hot blonde. And I'm like, that's my wife. That's my wife. Like I claim like a caveman. That's my wife. And I began to court this young lady. Her name was Kristen. And me and Kristen would date for four years, actually get married four or five years. Seemed like 45, but four or five years. We actually got married. And I remember coming home thinking, okay, now I get to put what I've learned, the expectations of what I have into action. And so I come home from work thinking I'm going to be like Victor. And I'm going to walk in the door and it's going to be bow, chicka, bow, bow. And I walk in the door and it's no, chicka, no, no. You know, it's like it just, it didn't work for me like it worked for Victor. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll try Al. So I'm like, hey, look, this is how it's going to be. This is what I'm going to do. You're going to go do this. I'm going to sit on the couch. Oh, it didn't work for me like Al either. Because I realized that my expectations weren't tied to anything of meaning or anything of purpose. Then we move on to fatherhood. Now, believe it or not, I had never had a baby before. And I really didn't know what it was like to have a baby. But as we uh, became, as, as we became pregnant, as we became pregnant, as my wife became pregnant, people would start handing me things. And one lady handed me a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Awful book. You should never read it. I opened it to one page. It had some diagram. I shut it and never looked at it again. Now, but on the cover of the book was this beautiful picture of this woman holding this beautiful baby. The baby had, like, blonde hair and blue eyes. And it was, like, the cutest baby I'd ever seen. And I'm like, I want that kind of baby. Like, I want a baby that looks like this baby. And I would carry, like, we're going to have this baby. We go, and uh, it's time to give birth to my son, Mitchell, and we're in the hospital room. And I remember the doctor delivers the baby, and, 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 and he holds him up, and I'm like, Oh, my gosh. You just gave birth to a Klingon. You're like, what is this? Like, it's not like the picture. In fact, I got a picture of him when he was born. It looks like this. Like, this is my son. Like, sorry, son. He's here today. He's going to be in counseling for the rest of his life. Um, don't worry. I'm a counselor. I can, I can help you. But then God, like this past summer, like God really revealed like this, this whole thing about expectations to me in, in the form uh, of the slingshot in Panama City. So I have a picture that I'm going to show you of the slingshot of Panama City. Now, in this picture, you'll see a woman on the left. The woman on your left is actually my mother-in-law. Okay, this is Becky Sanford. Wonderful lady. Love her dearly. She's my favorite mother-in-law I've ever had. Definitely top three. Uh, on the, the young man on the right is my Klingon son, Mitchell. He actually turned out okay. He's not necessarily beautiful, but he's okay, you know. Um, and they decide that they're going to ride this ride called the slingshot. It's basically they strap you into a contraption, attach two bungee cords, and shoot you up into outer space. Sounds like a blast. The thing you need, oh, the picture left. The thing you need to know is that the woman on the left, my mother-in-law, this will be the ninth time she has ridden this ride. She absolutely loves it. She loves everything about it. She loves the thrill. She loves the adrenaline. She knows what to expect, and she is happy to be there because you can see it on her face. The young man on your right, no clue. He's 13 years old. He thinks he has it all figured out, even though he forgets to put his underwear on half the time. He thinks he has it all figured out, and all he's solely doing is basing it on his own ability. And so what you're about to see is this. You're about to see a lady that has her expectations aligned with the truth, and a young man who has no expectations. Here's what it might look like. Changed? Uh, it goes underground. <laughs> <laughs> 
a beautiful picture. Can you leave that picture up on the big screen so they can see that? It's a beautiful picture. The woman on the left, expectations clearly placed where they belong. Young man on the right, no expectations. And I believe that as you begin to talk about the core values of the church and the core values of Christianity, this is a great picture of us. This is, a, this is really a great picture of us and the church. You see, some of us have no expectations of what God is possibly doing in your life. You have no expectations of what God can possibly do through you to other people. And you would be the person on the right that you are just clenching your fist and you are screaming through everything that God is doing. And then there's some of us that, that are attaching our expectations to actual biblical truth. The expectations of what God has actually promised you. Because in the Bible, that is just a book of promises. And in that, you'll find that there's joy. Even in the dimmest of circumstances, even when things aren't going your way, you'll find a way to smile because you know God is doing something. And a God that loves you and a God that you trust, and in that you'll find tremendous joy. And when it comes to serving others, nine times out of ten, we're like Mitchell. When it comes to actually ministering to other people, we, we're kind of uncertain. And we kind of, we go through it like, what am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to love people? Am I supposed to quit, quote scripture? Am I supposed to throw my Bible at them? Do I need something written down on a piece of paper? What if they don't listen? What if they don't like me? What if they don't respond? I don't know what to do. Ah! <laughs> but that, that's not who you were created to be. So my goal for you today is this, is that the, the, the second half of the New Testament, from Acts on, are letters telling us how we're supposed to be the church. But we will never, ever get there unless you really realize who God has called you to be. And so I want to show you who God's called you to be. This message came to life to me yesterday. I asked probably one of the most influential people in my life, do you feel like you are a person of influence? And their answer was no. And I'm like, man, we're missing it. And there's no way that the gospel can move forward unless we believe, begin to believe and begin to know who you were created to be. You were created to be a person of influence. You were created to have influence with others. You were created to make a difference. You were created to move the gospel from one place to the next with your love and your care and your acts. That's what the Bible is very clear on. And I thought, what better way to show you that than to show you the story or to tell you the story of, I believe, the second most influential person in the world. The first being Jesus. The second one being found in John chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. Ooh, that's a good clap. The first one was a good one. The second one was lame. John chapter 4. You don't have to stay with me here. I'm going to jump around because I have the ADHD. It says this in, in, in John 4, 4. It says this. Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way. He was going to Galilee. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Near the field of Jacob that gave, Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from a long walk. He sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. So Jesus walks on this well. He's tired. He's been walking. He just sits there. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. 
He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised. Here's why the woman was surprised. You see, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't interact. And men certainly didn't interact with women. And so here's what you have, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And these two people were not supposed to be talking. Everything in their culture said that, in fact, Jesus was supposed to get up and leave. But he didn't. He actually engaged her in a conversation. He actually said, hey, can you get me a drink of water? The Samaritan woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why in the world are you asking me for a drink? And then Jesus replied to her. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. If you only knew the gift God has for you. Everybody say if. That was awful. Say if. If you only knew the gift God has for you. And who you were speaking to. You would ask me, and I would give you the living water. In verse 13, Jesus says, Anyone who drinks of this water, talking about the water in the well, will soon become thirsty. But those who drink the water I will give them will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here for water. Then Jesus said, go get your husband. Ooh. The lady replies, I don't have a husband. Then Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, but you have five husbands, and you aren't even married to the dude that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, I've heard this story before, and I always envision Jesus being like this savage guy. He's like, you are right. You don't have just one husband. You've got five like the dude, you can't handle the truth. That's how I pictured him, always. And then I began to actually study the story. Then I began to actually see Jesus. You see, Jesus never spoke with condemnation. Like He wasn't condemning this woman. He was actually speaking truth to her in hopes to reveal something that she'd been missing all along. You see, the people that saw this woman saw her as the immoral woman. So as she was walking down the streets, wives would move their husband away from her. The men would, like, talk about her. Everybody would kind of point at her. And she walked through her life alone. But that's not how Jesus saw her. You see, Jesus saw her as a miracle waiting to happen. You see, Jesus, Jesus saw her whole story, not just her current circumstance. Jesus saw that this woman didn't just wake up one day and be like, you know what? I think I'm going to have six husbands. I think I'm going to walk through my life. You know, she didn't. Her circumstance drove her there. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus knew that she wasn't defined by who she was in that moment, that she was defined by who she was created to be. Because if you only knew the gift that God has given you, he knew that there was probably some wound. He knew that she was probably looking for love in all the wrong places. That would be a great song for you songwriters. He knew that maybe there was a daddy wound. Maybe there was a... He knew the whole story. And so instead of condemning her, he offered her something that fulfilled her greatest need. He said, listen, I can give you something 
that will never make you want again. Because what she wanted was love. What she wanted was grace. What she wanted was forgiveness. What she wanted was purpose. What she wanted was influence. How do I know? Because that's all the things I want. As as I go through my life, I, I always want more. Give me more love. Give me more grace. Give me more kindness. Give me more people. God, give me more influence. And Jesus offers her that. We'll go on to read the rest of the story. It says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is only a place of worship while Samaritans claim that it is Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Then Jesus says this, and I believe this is, this is awesome. Verse 21, he said, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here right now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is the Spirit, so those who worship him must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And then in verse 28, it says this. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this possibly be the Messiah? And verse 30 is the best part. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. So picture this. A woman who's by all means immoral, viewed as immoral, has one encounter with Jesus where Jesus shows her who she really is. The reason I love this story so much is it's one of the only stories where Jesus didn't change her circumstance. It wasn't like she was paralyzed on a mat and he made her walk. It wasn't like she was dying and he rose her from the dead. It wasn't like she had leprosy and he healed her. He didn't change anything about her circumstance. He only changed her view of herself. And when you begin to view yourself in the correct way, the way the Father views you, you will begin to see your world change. What does she do? She gets up and she runs to town. The same woman that they all ran from are now listening to her. And then for some reason, they all streamed to see this man. The woman who nobody wanted anything to do with is now one of the most influential people to ever walk the earth. And there's three things I learned about this woman. And there are three things I know about you. And the three things I know about influence. Number one, influence isn't always instant. Influence isn't always instant. You see, these people, these people followed in an instant. But the gift that, that she had, she had always had. She, she was given that gift and she had always had it. And sometimes we want God to act like the genie in Aladdin. Where we rub our magic Bible and all of a sudden God's there. We tell him what we want and it happens. And guess what? It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. Sometimes it might, but not always. But influence isn't always instant. And one of the most discouraging things is when it's not. So I'm in the business of hanging out with teenagers. I teach. I coach. 
And, and I encounter people that are hurting all the time. And I engage them. And my prayer is always, God, do this instantly. Like, let me see this happen. And nine times out of ten, it doesn't happen instantly. And you're talking about being discouraged. Like, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm saying the words you want me to say. I'm loving them the best I can. Why in the world are they not changing? But just because you don't see the harvest doesn't mean the seed isn't taking root. Just because you don't see the end result doesn't mean that the seed that you're planting isn't taking root in the hearts of the people. And by the way, it's not your job to save them. It's his. It's his. It's your job to love them. It's your job to show them grace. It's your job to serve them together because of guess what? Because he's given you something more. Influence isn't always obvious. It's not always instant, and it's not always obvious. This lady proves that. The person that you would least expect to create a movement of the gospel became the most influential person of her time. You see, you can go read Acts 6, and you can go read 1 Peter 10, and hopefully you're doing that in your small groups. And what that's going to tell you is that you've got a gift. And what it's going to tell you is that God is using that gift united behind a common purpose, which is the gospel, to move the church forward. And if you're not careful, you'll say, but, but God, seriously, me? Me? Like, I got this problem, I got this problem, I got this problem. Ain't no way I can help that dude. Look, I'm 14 years old. Like, I just failed my algebra, my eight, my son, gosh, seventh grade math. I don't know how to do seventh grade math. How in the world am I going to? But what we know about God is he, he's going to use you. You don't have to be qualified. He's going to qualify you. And he's going to move you to places you, can, you could never imagine. And the last thing is this, is influencers don't have to have it all together. To be a person of influence, you don't have to have it all together. In fact, it's better when you're broken. It's better when you're broken. I, I thought about, like, how, how in the world would, like, could I tell you a story uh, that ties all this together? And, and I have a story. And I don't, I don't tell it a lot, and I don't tell it a lot in public. So count yourself blessed, brother. Um, it's going to be very important from this moment on that you listen very carefully. Okay. No, no, no church, like, no, don't think about the Super Bowl. It'll still be there when you get back, okay? Um, so three years ago, I, I, was the, uh, I was pastoring. I was an associate pastor of a church, and I was also doing student ministry. I was traveling around. It was, it was great. I was, like, I was working with the FCA. I was, you know, I'm not telling you this to make you think I'm something. It's just the truth. I was, like, one of the most sought-after people to come to high school assemblies and speak. Like, it was great. Times were good. I got the opportunity to go to Birmingham, Alabama, to be part of a motion student conference, which was a gathering of about 28,000 students in Birmingham, Alabama. Unbelievable opportunity for me. Okay? So, of course, I'm going to go be a part of it. I, I get in my car, and I realize right before I'm leaving that, that, that I've got a problem. And the problem was is that the tags on my car were expired. Now, not a big deal for you. Just go take, take care of it. But the problem was is it was a Friday afternoon. So I drive to the place. The place is closed. The admissions place is closed. Now I've got a major problem because now I've got expired tags, and I'm going to Alabama. People in Alabama are crazy. You know? Are you, anybody from Alabama? 
Oh, gosh, that's why y'all are in the back. <laughs> like I said, people from Alabama are crazy. And so I come up with this plan. You see, there's this trailer that has a license plate. And the trailer, you don't have to take through admissions. And it still has the sticker. So I needed the sticker that said 17. So I'm like, okay, I've got this plan. I'm going to take the sticker that goes on the trailer, and I'm going to put it on my license plate because all I need is the sticker that says 17, and I'll be good to go. I'm not planning on breaking any laws. My car doesn't go over 55 without shaking anyways. It's not that big of a deal. So I take the sticker that's supposed to go on the trailer. I put it on my license plate. I go to Birmingham, Alabama. It was amazing. Saw God do amazing things. Came back forever changed. I come back. In the back of my head, I know that I need to get this taken care of. But I'm also what they call, like, I'm an eternal optimist, but I'm also a procrastinator. Uh, And so I was like, you know what? I'll get it taken care of. I'll get it taken care of. My wife, in the meantime, is saying, hey, you need to get your license plate taken care of. Like, she's constantly reminding me because that's what she does. And I love her for it. And so... It's December now. (laughs) Procrastinator. I'm at the Walmart with my children. It's a Thursday. It's actually my day off from work. I'm actually calling in an order from Cracker Barrel to take to a family that's shut in, that that can't get out. They're they're in bad health. Me and my kids are going to bless them. We're going to take them lunch that day. We're just going to spend time. We're in Walmart. I call in to Cracker Barrel. Hey, I need catfish dinner because that's what they liked. And they were like, okay, it'll be about 25, 30 minutes before it's ready. So we're going to go across the street to the church that I work at, and we're just going to hang out at the church for 25, 30 minutes. We're going to go pick up the Cracker Barrel. We're going to bless the people. It's going to be great. I'm pulling out of Walmart. I put my blinker on. I turn right, and there's a cop behind me. Not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal. I'm not breaking any laws. I drive 15 miles per hour, literally 30 yards up the road. I turn my blinker on. I turn left into the church. The cop pulls in behind me. Still not that big of a deal in my mind. A lot of people go to church there. A lot of cops go to church there. He's probably just coming to sit in the parking lot until he turns his lights on. I pull up to the parking spot where I always park in. He pulls behind me. He comes up to the door. He's like, sir, may I see your license and your registration? And I'm like, yeah, if you don't mind. Like, what was I, like, it's the common question. What was I doing? He's like, license, registration. And I give him my license and a registration, and then I realize, okay, I got some explaining to do. Sir, here's the trailer, like, and he takes everything and he leaves. Okay. Meanwhile, my daughter is freaking out. Oh my God, Daddy, you're going to jail! Ah! I'm like, baby, I'm not going to jail. Your mom's going to be ticked. Maybe jail's not that bad of an option, but listen, <laughs> Daddy's going to be fine. My son could care less. He's like eating peanut M and M's or something. Like, it's oblivious. We're sitting there. Shelby finally gets calmed down. Um, and, and it's been like 20 minutes, and I've seen enough live PD to know that it shouldn't take 20 minutes. So I look at my rearview mirror, and what was one cop car is now six cars. And they're surrounding me. And they were like, sir, could you please get out of the car? And I'm like, please get out of the car. And they're like, yes, get out of the car. I'm like, get out of the car. They're like, get out of the car. I'm like, okay, I'm getting out of the car. So I get out of the car, and, 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 I, and I really like, I mean, I'm the pastor of this church. Like, I'm in the church parking lot. And I got this nervous habit. Like, if I'm nervous, I'll, I'll put my hands in my pants, and I'll kind of, and so I'll put my, and they're like, get your hands out of your pants. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they move me to the front of the police car, and they put my head on the police car, and they handcuff me. And I look into the, I turn my head to look into the, and my daughter's like, oh, my son's like eating peanuts, trying to cover her eyes, <laughs> you know. 
And I'm like, guys, you got to tell me what's going on. And they're like, we're charging you with a felony. And I'm like, a felony? Like, what are you talking about? And they put me in the back of the car. Um, they're like, who can we call to come get your kids? And I'm like, call my wife. They try to call my wife. She's taking a nap. Like, of all the times to take a nap. They finally, finally call somebody, and they're driving me to the Wilson County Jail. And then they, they inform me on the way. It's like, hey, when you replace that sticker, that's tampering with government property, which is a Class E felony. And I'm like, holy cow. Like, what? Like, what is that? Because at the time, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm a speaker, and now you're telling me I've got a Class E felony. And so in that car ride, I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice because I, I desperately believe that I am a person of influence, not because of anything I do, but because of who Jesus is. But I also definitely knew that my circumstances had just changed. The game was now different. So I decided in that car, car ride to be who I always knew I was created to be. And so when I got out of the car, they, they got me out of the car and I said, thank you. And they said, what? And I said, thank you. They said, that might be the first time anybody's ever said thank you to us. And I'm like, well, thank you. And the seats are uncomfortable and the handcuffs are too tight. And we go in. They say, hey, it's time to take your mugshot. And I'm like, a mugshot? And they're like, yeah, a mugshot. And they're like, hey, we need to let you know that it becomes public information. As soon as we take it, it's going to be out there for everybody to see. I, had, I was at the time working with Mount Juliet football. I had a Mount Juliet football hoodie on. I was like, listen, I can't take the mugshot in the Mount Juliet football hoodie. I love these dudes. I, I, it's not going to work. They were like, well, hey, you can, what do you got on underneath it? A tank top. <laughs> they said, well, hey, here's the thing. You can either take the picture in the tank top or we can give you one of these orange vests. I was like, the tank top will do. Then you get to mugshot. And I'm not making light of it, but this is, this is just, like, I didn't know whether to smile. I didn't know whether to look like a hardened criminal. I didn't, so I ended up looking like this. <laughs> this is me. This is me. So they put me in, uh, they put me in cell block H8. And I was in there, and, and I noticed that everybody was standing up next to their door, next to the glass. And I'm like, well, I'm here. I'm standing up next to my glass like this. Guy across the, across the room was like, what are you in here for? <laughs> I'm like, man, you know that sticker you put on your license plate? Like, you can't take one off a trailer and put it on your car. He's like, that's the dumbest boop I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, I know, right? I'm like, what are you in here for? He's like, I just tried to kill my girlfriend. I'm like, I'm going to go sit down for a little while. <laughs> and I sat there, and I was there for a while. My wife, my wife, I, they, I got to use a phone call. <laughs> she was circling the parking lot. Um, and you just envision your life now. Everything, everything you knew is, is seemingly gone except for who you are. Yeah, I, I knew my circumstances would change, but I, I knew it didn't change who I was. And so the people I encountered, I, 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 I treated them with kindness. Everybody I encountered, whether it was the inmate that I was in the cell with or whether it was the cop, because, hey, I'm here, but I'm still who God created me to be. So I get out. They're like, your wife is, uh, your wife's waiting in the parking lot. I'm like, can, can I just chill here for like, I was playing checkers with the guys. Can I just chill here for no. They're like, you got to go. So I go out in the car, and my wife was awesome. 
I mean, she, she understood the gravity of the situation, so she gave me a get-out-of-jail-free card, literally. Um, I go to the next day, and I get a call from a lawyer, and the lawyer's like, John, we, we want to inform you that you've been charged with a Class E felony. And I'm like, cool, what, what's that mean? They're like, well, it carries three to eight years in prison. And I'm like, three to eight years in prison? Like, that's crazy. Crazy. He's like, well, I got good news for you. I'm like, I'm all about good news right now. He's like, we don't think you'll actually go to prison. You can apply for judicial diversion, which will get you two and a half years of probation. I'm like, two and a half years? Like, I teach, I coach, I, I preach. Like, I can't. He's like, John, he's like, I'm sorry. This is the best you can do. In the meantime, before, before all this happened, I was volunteering at Bass Transitional School. And what Bass Transitional School is, this is it is a school for people that make bad decisions in school and get sent to juvenile detention. And, and so what you, if you're in juvenile detention, they will bus you to Bass Transitional School. They will help you kind of learn the best they can and then hopefully either get you back into school or help you get your GED. And I, and I was volunteering there, and I absolutely loved it. And, and so the, the next day I had to call the principal, and I'm like, hey, hey, I need to talk to you about something. He's like, I need to talk to you about something. He's like, for the first time in years, people are actually loving the class that you're teaching. You are making a difference. The kids love you. And he goes on and on and on. And I'm like, yeah, bro, but I got to talk to you about something. And I told him what had happened. And I was like, man, I'm, I, I, I'm getting charged with a felony. I can't come. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I, I don't care. Say, I don't care if you're a preacher, a teacher, a nun, a felon. Like, God is using you to do something here. And so I will see you on Tuesday. And he hung up the phone. And so I go there on Tuesday. I still have all this stuff going on. And I sit down. And what happens is, is the new students come in, like, every day. And so I sit down, and I've got two new students. And one is a 17-year-old male. And he is mad. He's mad at the world. He's mad. He doesn't want to talk. And so one of the first things we'll do in my class, I'm like, hey, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do right now? Because I know that they all desire something more. Nobody ever is like, you know what, I'm going to wake up and be a juvenile delinquent. No. Like just things happen, and they forget who they are. And so if we can ever bring them back to who they are, then we'll see them flourish. If you got a kid, you probably ought to cover their ears. He said, if I could do anything right now. I would kill you, I would get high, and I would end it all. And I'm like, yeah, they didn't teach me how to handle this in college. But I remembered who I was. Not the circumstance that I was in, but I remembered who I was. And I was like, man, listen, I don't know what it is, but I love you. And God's given you a gift. And if you'll stick with it, like, we'll find it. Two days later, I get a phone call. Wilson County, that's all it said. Wilson County. I'm like, here we go. I answer the call. He's like, Mr. Carey, this is, this is Tommy. I'm like, hello, Tommy. He's like, hey, how's your dad? My dad's great. He's like, uh, you know me and your dad were best friends growing up. And he said, uh, your dad was always so kind. Your dad was always so, like, generous. Your dad loved everybody. Your dad, God, he made a difference in my life. He made a difference in everybody's life he encountered. And he keeps going on and on and on about my dad. And then he's like, I talked to your dad yesterday. 
And I, and I felt like this big at the time. And then he said this. He said, your dad talked about how proud he was of you. Crap. He said, on the phone, he talked about all the things you're doing. And he said, John's literally changing the world. And then Tommy said, you know I'm the district attorney for Wilson County. And we can't have a world changer with a felony. And he dropped every charge that day. And he expunged my record. No, you don't have to clap. Don't clap. It was a bad decision. And all I got left is a cool story and a mugshot. <laughs> and then fast forward to Chris. A year with Chris, he got his GED. He went and got a job. He now has a wife, two children. And he's a teacher at Bass Transitional School. You can clap for that. So I tell you to tell you this. I tell you that story to, to tell you this. Is that you are an influencer. And it might not be instant. It might not be obvious. And you don't have it all together. Don't kid yourself. You don't. You don't have it all together. But God has gifted you with something. And it's all different. But it has one purpose, and that purpose is to move the gospel forward. In Ephesians, he says that you are his masterpiece, saved by grace so that you can't boast, but destined to do the good works that have been prepared for you. The good works aren't your job. It's not my job. Like, my good works is not a, I'm, it's not like I'm predestined you to be a teacher. He lets me be a teacher. The good works is like, I'm going to love relentlessly. And I'm going to encourage. And I'm going to give hope to the hopeless. And I'm going to share the gospel with anybody I can, not by how smart I am. And I could. Like, you want to get in a scripture quoting contest? I'll whoop you in that. But I'm going to be the reflection of Christ because the Holy Spirit dwells with inside of me and there is a desperate world that needs you you you're not only a miracle waiting to happen you are someone else's miracle waiting to happen God didn't just save people just to save that person he saved people to save the world so and truly understand how we're supposed to serve, you're supposed to understand who you are. You're the light in the dark. You're the city on the hill. You're the hope for the hopeless. You're the healing for the hurting. Like, that's you. So walk out today believing that. You will never know how one kind word will change the actual trajectory of someone else's life. You'll never know. I saw the jailer Thursday night at a friendship Christian basketball game. You want to talk about awkward. Talk about the running into the dude that slammed your head on a cop car. And I pointed at him and he pointed at me. And he was like, man, it is good to see you. 
And I'm like, man, do you have a gun? <laughs> and we hugged. And we called up. And we talked about kids. His son was playing like, man, one kind word, one moment of encouragement. That's who you are because that's who he created you to be. And the problem is somewhere along the way, our circumstances make us forget it. My bank account makes me forget who I really am. My job sometimes makes me forget who I really am. But the one thing that's constant in your life is the love of Jesus and the grace that he showed you that day on the cross. But it it was not only about getting you to heaven. If it was just about getting you to heaven, the cross would have been enough. But he rose again to send his spirit to see his people change his world. You are an influencer. Walk out that door believing it. Let me pray for you. Dear God, we thank you for today. I thank you for, uh, man, I thank you for my father. Both my eternal father and my earthly father. But today, I stand grateful for my dad. That he refused to let me, uh, to let me believe that I was something that I wasn't. As he saw me as you see me. And so today, God, allow us to really realize who you created us to be. You created us to be influencers. You created us to be difference makers. You created us to show love and hope and grace. And there's nothing that can stop that. There's no circumstance that's too big for you. And there's no detail in my life that is too small. And that you will love me through it all. So, God, if there's not, if there's somebody in here that hasn't experienced that, God, let them find somebody and let them talk about that. And then let us unite behind your gospel to see our city changed and to see the world become the thing that you desire it to be. And that is your kingdom. God, you said it, my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, use these people. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.